So our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 24, and we're going to read verses 13 to 27. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are! And how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Thank you, Joe. Um, You can keep a finger in Luke 24, but to be helping me, if you go back to Luke chapter 1 to start with, our first reading, let's pray with um, Luke chapter 1 open in front of us. We thank you, Father, as we've sung, that your word is living and enduring, and we praise you that you are the living God and that you endure And we pray, therefore, that we would hear your voice this evening. It would give us life, and it would last in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our question today is, can I trust the Bible? And um, the main verse that I want to select from the two readings is verse 4 of Luke chapter 1, where Luke really tells his reader his aim so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Um, Luke is claiming that I can come to the Christian message found in the Bible and be assured of the certainty of what I'm being taught, that it's secure, it's a safe message for me to base my life on. Now, I'm not so naive as to think that just because the Bible says that, we can know the certainty of its message, QED, we can. But 
the Bible is obviously recognizing that the concern people have is entirely appropriate. If you're going to base your life on something, it had better be secure. Can I trust the Bible is an entirely sensible question. And nowadays, there's actually a slightly different slant, an extra slant on the question, which I didn't used to notice in people's minds quite so prominently a few years back. And it's this. The problem some people have is not just the question, can I trust the Bible, but can I trust myself? Even if the Bible is from God, can I actually trust myself to interpret it rightly? Let me give you a trivial example of how interpreting written material can go wrong. I was interested to discover a few years ago the findings of some medical research. The study told me that the Japanese eat very little fat, and they have fewer heart attacks than people from Britain or America. And it went on to say that the French eat lots of fat, and they have fewer heart attacks than Brits or Americans. Um, the Japanese, it said, drink very little red wine, and they have, as we know, fewer heart attacks than British or American people. Italians drink lots of red wine, and they also have fewer heart attacks than Brits or Americans. And as for Germans, uh, they drink beer, they eat lots of sausages and fatty foods, I gather, and they suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or Americans. So the study concluded, you can eat and drink what you like, speaking English is what's really dangerous. Now, you see, at one level there, the medical facts are out there. The question is, can we interpret them accurately? Or will we all come up with a different spin on what they actually say? And you can see how when it comes to the Bible, there's a line of reasoning there which might undermine our confidence. How can we be certain? Well, let's consider the first issue, whether we can have any confidence in the history contained in the Bible. Confidence historically. And this is Luke's point in his prologue. He's introducing an account of Jesus' life, and clearly he wants us to take it seriously as history. Uh, let's examine his claim. I'll read that little section again. It's nice and short. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. I want you to notice, just looking at those words, two stages in his work as a writer, which Luke describes there. First, there were the eyewitnesses who saw the events firsthand, and reported them to Luke. That's the first one. In other words, we're to imagine him, if you like, with a reporter's notebook. He's sifting his sources. He's not content with second-hand reports based on mere hearsay. He's only happy with the testimony of those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses. And Luke is acknowledging that many others have done work, and he's claiming that now he's added to that existing body of eyewitness testimony by the stuff he's compiled. It's a fascinating little comment on the short gap between the events of Jesus' life and the writing down of the events. And that applies to the Gospels. I'm actually going to spend time really on the Gospels tonight. 
just cut into the Bible by looking at them, those accounts of Jesus' life. It applies to the Gospel, the accounts of Jesus' life, which were written down within a few decades of Jesus' life. It also applies, actually, to the letters, some of which were even earlier. Um, we had a creed tonight from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians dates from around 50 AD. And we had a, a longer version of that creed read to us last Sunday, about it included a resurrection appearance to 500 people. So Paul, writing there, is writing, what, 20 years after the event, and he's able to say many of these 500 are still alive. In other words, small gap. You can check with them whether these events actually happened or not. People sometimes worry, did the facts get lost along the way before they were written down? But Luke here reminds us that the people who provided the material for the New Testament saw the events they reported firsthand. And that, it seems to me, places the Christian message on a very secure historical footing. As public documents, when they circulated, if they had been untrue, they would have been discredited in a moment. People would have jumped up to their feet and said, look, I was there. And it didn't happen like that at all. And Luke's claim here explains why that sort of protest never happened. He used eyewitness sources. I mentioned two stages. The second stage relates to his own writing. He says, I didn't just interview eyewitnesses. I investigated my findings carefully. And so I've come up with an orderly account. Now, we might miss the uh, full significance of that. Because the sort of thing that Luke is writing in his gospel, and you'll allow me, I hope, to just confine myself largely today to the gospels. The sort of thing Luke is writing is in many ways unique. Certainly it's something completely different from the legends and myths of the ancient world. Let me explain why this is important. Today, you and I, we're all familiar with the conventions of modern fiction writing. For us, that is the staple diet of literature. But actually, historically, that style has really only developed into a literary genre since the, since the 18th century. And we call it the novel, which is basically a shortish story of realistic fiction. And the convention is that realistic fiction is written almost like history. So it's very, very detailed. It records events in detail from lots of different angles and with lots of information. And we're used to that in novels. But ancient legends and myths aren't written like that at all. I studied the epics of Greek literature, like Homer. I did medieval French epics, like Tristan and Isolde. And Luke's gospel is something entirely different. It's not in the legend category or the epic category. And Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 is a case in point. You'd never start those epic legends the way Luke starts his gospel. C.S. Lewis was the Cambridge professor of medieval and renaissance literature. And there was an occasion once when he went into the principal of Westcott House's study and he saw a book on his desk which said that the miracles of Jesus were symbolical. They were just allegory, not fact. The Gospels were myths made up. 
Here's what he said on that occasion. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this, the New Testament. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, he has to use a a nice word, historical reporting, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this simply has not learned to read, he said. He was a professor, so he allows himself to sound a bit pompous and condescending at the end. But have a read of the New Testament and see if you don't agree. Do the New Testament accounts, do the Gospels, Lives of Jesus, read like myth and legend? No. Okay. Does it make sense to see them as novelistic in style, a mere 1,800 years early? Again, you've got to say no. Okay, so what category of writing are they? Well, the answer is they set themselves up as history, as fact. And therefore, if we dispute that, it's up to us to find an alternative reading of history which is more convincing, or else to accept their claim to be history. Let me just say that the Gospels have seen off 2,000 years of opposition, and I'm for backing them. It's amazing what you have to believe not to believe that they are worthy of our confidence historically. Now, I realize, as I said, I've not tackled the rest of the Bible. That's because if the gospel accounts are reliable history, then that is where we encounter the figure of Jesus. And he, for his part, endorses the whole of the Bible as reliable. So the reliability of the Bible, the rest of the Bible, flows in one sense from the reliability of the gospels. And if it would be helpful... I've got a couple of copies of a little booklet uh, called Why Trust Them about the New Testament documents, particularly the four Gospels. Now I want to turn to um, that other area of uncertainty we encounter. Even if the Bible's content is factual, there's another question. Can we have any confidence in our interpretation of the Bible? And as I said earlier, it's a very contemporary question. But I want to suggest that our anxiety about whether we can interpret words rightly is greatly exaggerated. And in fact, none of us actually live this way. Words do have clear meanings for us. And we are able to communicate using them. I've got a friend called Robin, who's now a vicar in Wimbledon, and he read history at Peterhouse in Cambridge. He shared his rooms one year with a classicist, who had the postmodern outlook that no one can understand texts accurately. Words don't mean what we think they mean. That the interpretation of any text is ambiguous, that each reader can choose what a text means, and no one can contradict that meaning if it's true for them. That was his main intellectual obstacle to taking the Christian faith seriously. As he understood it, his interpretation of the Bible was different to his roommate Robin's and neither could claim that theirs was right and the others was wrong. Now, Robin was a a larger-than-life character, still is. 
He was well-known in the university, so well-known, I understand, that on one occasion, a postcard addressed from some female admirer to Robin Cambridge somehow made it in the post (laughs) to him in Peterhouse. Anyway, on one occasion, Robin's roommate was sick, and he asked Robin to go and buy some stuff at Sainsbury's, that little Sainsbury's on Sydney Street in town. He gave him a list. Anyway, an hour later... Robin came back with a completely different set of provisions. And his friend said to him, look, that's all wrong. Why didn't you get what was on the list? And Robin protested, oh, this is how I interpreted your list. Thankfully, his friend saw the funny side of it. Now, I am going to argue in a moment that um, some of the problems people have with the Bible do arise from wrong interpretations of the Bible. People do sometimes get it wrong. But that's not the same as saying that we can't ever have any confidence in the text. We all live our lives, our daily lives, as if words have clear meanings and sequences of words have clear meaning. It isn't impossible to arrive at an understanding of the Bible. And even though it wasn't particularly about Scripture, our second reading demonstrated that clearly. Can you turn on to Luke 24? Start and end of Luke's Gospel tonight. Luke 24, this is reporting an incident which happened the day of Jesus' resurrection. Now, it's the bit in verses 25 to 27 which I think helps us with the whole matter of rightly interpreting the Bible. Here were a couple of Christians for whom the events of the weekend had brought confusion. Why were they downcast? Well, Jesus explains it as a selective reading of the Bible. How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Joe read that so well, just to emphasize that word, all. In other words, they believed some of the prophetic predictions, but not all of them. So what had happened in their reading of the Bible? Well, it was selective. They expected from the Old Testament that a Messiah would come to save them. And then he died. But they failed to see that actually all the way through the Old Testament there was a thread running through that said he would save them by dying. But they hadn't seen that big picture. Now, I'm not for one moment saying that we can't understand the Bible. We'll help that Jesus, we'll see that Jesus helps us to do that. But that, it's clear, the Bible has a clear meaning and we can know it. But the disciples here demonstrate that it's possible for us to get scripture wrong. And so often, as in their case, it will be because of a selective reading of the Bible, which causes us just to lose our bearings and miss the way. Let me give you an example. Uh, this is often mentioned, been in the news this week, the issue of slavery. It's topical because Cambridge University, they're investigating their links to the slave trade. Now, I've often heard people say that the Bible condones slavery. And then the objection in people's mind carries on like this. Nowadays, we know better. The Bible was wrong there. And the question in people's mind is, who knows where else it's wrong? But people are often very selective in the text they quote. 
it boils down to one or two texts. Ephesians 6, 1 Peter 2, slaves obey your masters. Brief texts like that. And if we looked more widely in the Bible, we'd quickly understand that what Paul meant by Ephesians 6, I think it's verse 6, somebody will tell me, um, 1 Peter 2, 18, what the writers meant by that verse and what they could never have meant. There's actually a New Testament letter on the master-servant relationship uh, where Paul writes to Philemon about his slave Anesimus. And when you read that, it's clear that the relationship that's being described is more like domestic servanthood, not what we think of as slavery at all. When we see the word slave, we instinctively think of the 18th and 19th century and the race-based slave trade conducted throughout Europe and the US. And when you read the Bible through that lens, you aren't really understanding what the Bible is teaching. People who used the Bible to justify the New World slave trade were doing just that. They were using the Bible. Dr. Murray Harris was the uh, former warden of Tyndale House. He's done a slavery, a study of slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world. And obviously there were instances of appalling cruelty, but not on the scale of the, America, of the African slave trade. He says that slaves generally were not segregated or distinguishable by race, speech, or clothing. Often they were more educated than their masters and held salaried middle management positions, if you wanted an equivalent today. Often earned enough capital to buy themselves by their late, late 30s. And that explains why the New Testament writers are comparatively mild in their opposition to slavery. If you can get your freedom, says Paul, take it. That was the sort of line. And why they didn't do anything too radical to bring it to an end. That's their situation that they're dealing with in the New Testament. Wilberforce and others, facing a much more brutal form of oppression rightly felt that the Bible pushed them to work flat out for its abolition and end, because the practices of the African slave trade, such as kidnapping and forced abduction, actually are clearly condemned in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testaments. So you see how the cultural lens through which we read the Bible means that sometimes, particularly if we read it selectively, we'll come to wrong conclusions. In fact, the list of topics on which we'll do that is actually a lengthy list, and it changes all the time. Every culture comes up with new areas where we dislike what we think the Bible says. That fact alone should tell us how dangerous it is to come to the Bible from our culture's perspective and say, we know better today. That is just chronological snobbery. What gives us the right to say that our culture knows best? I like to... um, let my mind play games and imagine what things will be like in 50 years' time. Wouldn't it be interesting in 50 years' time when some of us may be great-grandparents, maybe some of us are already, because then it'll be our turn to be ridiculed for our culture's embarrassing ideas of right and wrong, and our great-grandchildren will laugh or cry. They'll say, you believe that? Come on! Just the same way we sometimes find our ancestors' beliefs embarrassing as we look back on what they thought. 
And we don't really know which of our cultural norms will look stupid. So how are you going to feel in 50 years' time if you rejected the Bible outright just because of selective interpretation on one area where at the time the Bible clashed with your culture? And then it turned out, in any case, to be an area which later on people felt differently about. Sorry, that's a bit of a a lay-by to go into. We thought a bit about wrong interpretation. Am I saying that because we sometimes get the Bible wrong, there's no point trying to understand the Bible rightly? Look at that passage again. How does Jesus help them towards a right interpretation of Scripture? It happened on the Emmaus Road through that extraordinary Bible study described in verse 27. And please notice again how this Bible study was anything but selective. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And that was what they looked back on later on. Uh, In verse 32, Little later it says, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now you see what it tells us about the Bible. So many of our misunderstandings about the Bible come from trying to reduce it to a code of rules. Do this, do that. A list of proof texts to control our behavior. Slaves, obey your master as if that was what the message of Christianity was about, as if Christianity was basically about our behavior. Well, it no doubt affects our behavior. I'm not denying that. But the real aim of the Bible is to lead us to take Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So Jesus walked them through the Bible, showing them in every bit how it was all about him. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And in particular, it was about his death. That was what they hadn't grasped, and he showed them how central it was. Um, It's one of the great evidences that the Bible is from God, that it has multiple authors, but one theme. It's all about what God would do for his people, not what they had to do for him. And it must have been amazing as they began to see on that uh, walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, how much Jesus loved them. It had all been planned um, for years. So he loved them not just as he walked the roads of Israel, thinking about his plan to to die, but the long corridors of eternity. And it had all been predicted. That's how much he loved the human race and longed to be in eternal fellowship with us. And that finds its way into all the Bible. And it's the grid through which we best understand it. And they began to see that. No wonder their hearts burn within them. And I wonder if uh, you have had, you begin to be aware of that same sort of experience. As you see how much Jesus Christ loved you. And therefore, how much he loves you. And you realize that behind the voice of Christians and the voice of the Bible, you've been hearing again and again another voice. Jesus opening the scriptures to you. I'm going to stop and uh, sit down. tell you about a couple of sightseers once who were standing outside a church building on a very sunny day, and they were looking at its dirty, dark exterior, and the windows looked particularly grimy and grey from outside. 
But then they went inside and saw the sun streaming. Well, we can't do it. Sun streaming through the windows, which were in this particular church building a series of beautifully detailed pictures in spectacular colours. So the same windows, but seeing them from a different viewpoint made all the difference. And that's ultimately the challenge when it comes to the Bible. If I'm looking at it from the outside, as it were, it may well seem a dark and difficult book. But how different if I take a step inside? If you come to know the Lord Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, as your Lord and Savior, somebody who died on the cross for your sins, somebody who's alive today, 2,000 years on, and if somebody grows in that knowledge then I guarantee you never find the Bible dull again with that relationship in place. And we're able to echo the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Didn't our hearts burn within us? Let me close there and close with a prayer. We pray, Heavenly Father, for... Uh, humility as we come before your word today and every day that we not stop using our minds we wouldn't back our minds against your mind again and again keep us humble keep us teachable and we pray you would lead us to that certainty in what we're taught that confidence That means we're able to build our lives securely on it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.